Hello, you lovely geeky people, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here once again with another hour of, well, not so much geeky news or really reviews this week. A uh, little bit of both right at the start, but mostly stuff this week. Uh, this is a week when I am, in fact, not around. And so all of this is being re recorded much earlier than normal. It is at least being recorded in the week of broadcast, which is not always the case, but not really an opportunity for me to do a lot of news. So what we are going to do is a deep dive kind of episode uh, into something very close, very close to my heart. But before we do that, a little bit of news that has broken between the time the last episode dropped and the time I'm recording this. This news really changes everything. Because of course I've got that as a jingle as well. Seriously. When you could have two, have two. And also, Ethan Peck has one heck of a singing voice, doesn't he? Anyway, that is not news. What is news? Well, there is some negative news around, quite a lot of negative news around if you're looking for TV and movie, movie news, at least. Hence, Ethan Peck's depressed Spock rendition of the jingle. The strike is beginning to bite, which, of course, is the strike's job. And the strategy of the studios does not appear to be changing. They seem to have completely failed to understand why six billionaires are losing the customer relations battle against all of the best writers in the world and about 15,000 of the world's hottest people. I, I, I know it's unfathomable. I don't understand how SAG and the WGA are getting the PR thing so right when the studios, who are all clearly very clever, are getting it so, so wrong. Except, of course, when you're right, you're right. But it is possible for two things to be true at the same time and Whilst I continue to stand in absolute lockstep solidarity with my union strong siblings on the other side of the pond, because they're right, that doesn't mean I can't be sad about the consequences. I, I know exactly where my irritation should be targeted, and it's not at the unions, but that does not mean I don't have irritation. The launch dates of several Movies and TV shows have now been officially pushed back, with in particular Ironheart being slightly sidelined. Now, I'm concerned about this because there was ever a character that this show really, really wants to get behind is Riri Williams' Ironheart. I've talked about the character at length on the show before, but if you are unfamiliar, Riri is a character from the comics. Obviously, she first emerged when she pitched up at Stark Tower, having built her own Iron Man suit, basically as a way of demonstrating to Tony Stark that she was worth paying attention to. Tony took her under his wing and then promptly died. At which point, while Doctor Doom was running around pretending to be Iron Man, Riri got herself sorted out, rebuilt her Iron Man suit, made it better uploaded an AI based on Tony Stark's digitised consciousness, because that wasn't weird or creepy at all, and for a while went under the name Iron Man, 
and then took the name Ironheart after a good deal of thinking about it and rejecting names like Iron Lady and Iron Maiden. The point about Riri to me is, well, there are two points to Riri. First, she's an absolutely fantastic character. Marvel having aged up quite a lot of its sort of legacy heroes. You know, Tony Stark is knocking on a bit now. You know, Peter Parker's in his 30s. A lot of these characters are not kids anymore. So Marvel needed some young characters. Riri is a teenager and she's an aspirational teenager. But she's also huge amounts of fun, which is something that comics need. You need characters who can be that not comedy, not comedic relief, but just light relief. Characters who have a sense of humour, but who are not joke characters. Riri, definitely that. And I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe could really do with a bit more of that. But also, as I said, Riri is a great aspirational character. She's a fantastic role model style character. She's a young woman who is incredibly talented in the sciences, who is a really sharp, cutting edge engineer with innovative ideas. Someone that young people, and I do mean boys and girls, can look up to and aspire to be like. But particularly important, given the dearth of young women who still are going into STEM subjects, a character who can be a cool young woman and also an engineer is useful in just in terms of representation. So I want to see more of her for that reason too but mostly i want to see more of her because she is as i said a great character and that has to go that always has to come first so the news that her show is being delayed is disappointing it's not surprising but it's disappointing so once again we appeal to the studio heads to stop being idiots about this and get around the table accept that what the writers and the actors are actually asking for is A, perfectly reasonable, and B, completely affordable, so that we can start getting stuff back. But it's not all bad news. I could have used the upbeat Christine Chapel version of the news jingle if I'd wanted, because that is good news too, even, even in TV, because, of course, the strike only affects American television. British TV, completely unaffected, at least for now. But that means, whilst I am in solidarity with the strikes, not talking about American TV shows right now, I can still talk about Doctor Who. Now, I wish I could say more about this, because I wish I knew more, because I wish they'd damn well announce more. But the BBC is playing its cards relatively close to its chest. We do know that there are three 60th anniversary specials which are going to air in November. Now, the BBC has not officially said when in November, but if it's not between Saturday the 18th and Saturday the 25th of November, I will be astonished because, of course, Thursday the 23rd of November is exactly the 60th anniversary of the first ever episode of Doctor Who. To not be broadcasting the 60th anniversary specials in that week makes no sense to me. I, I can see why they would maybe not 
actually go for the, the exact date because that's a Thursday night and Doctor Who has become a weekend thing again. But, you know, it used to be on Thursday nights, so they could do that. But that's my expectation. Now, those three specials, of course, feature the new Doctor, which is to say the 14th Doctor, which is to say the Doctor as portrayed by David Tennant, who, perhaps a little confusingly, was also the 10th Doctor. But it is very clear this is a new incarnation of the Doctor. It's not a return of the 10th. This is the 14th Doctor. So we can expect some personality differences. It also explains the fact that David Tennant is now a bit older than he was when he was the 10th. So there's that too. Those three specials are called The Star Beast, Wild Blue Yonder and The Giggle. We know very little else. Uh, we know that Neil Patrick Harris will be in them. Uh, we know that there is a new character called Rose, not Rose Tyler, as portrayed by the wonderful Billy Piper, but Rose Noble, played by Yasmin Finney, as the daughter of Catherine Tate's Donna Noble, which I'm really, really interested to see. Once those three specials are over, the 14th Doctor, we already know, will regenerate into the 15th Doctor, played by Shuti Gatwa. I have seen reported as the first black Doctor. That's clearly not true, because that is uh, the Fugitive Doctor, as played by Joe Martin, fits into the Doctor's increasingly wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey timeline some point before the first Doctor. Now, again, we don't have an official launch date for this, the BBC, rather coyly, is saying that Shuti Gatwa's Doctor will first appear over the festive period. Now, that covers a multitude of sins. I mean, when does the festive period start, officially, if you're the BBC? I mean, I know when it starts for me, but, you know, I did hear my first Christmas song in a shop the other day, and it's only flipping September, early September, even. The kids haven't got back to school yet, so actually they probably have by the time you hear this, but as I'm recording this, they haven't. So the, B the BBC could mean any time between now and March as the festive period. Personally, I think they mean Christmas week. Now, I have seen rather loosely lipped BBC folk on you know social medias and such like referring to it as the Christmas special, which would suggest Christmas Eve, Christmas Day or Boxing Day. And certainly the sort of Christmas Day Doctor Who thing was a thing for a good few years before it stopped being a thing and Chris Chibnall did sort of a New Year's Day special type thing. Uh, I I have a feeling that with Russell T Davies back, we're going back to the Christmas special. It was he who introduced it in the first place after all, which, I don't know, I liked the Christmas special, but from a point of view of actually having time to sit down and watch it when it first airs, New Year works better for me because... Christmas Day is kind of, you know, wild and awkward. And you've got so many responsibilities to, like, everybody else on Christmas Day. I actually found New Year a little bit more convenient, but I can't expect them to schedule Doctor Who just to please me. Well, I can expect them. I just know they won't. Far, everything seems to be going according to the regular Doctor Who timetable in that 
I have seen lots of enthusiasm from some fan circles, whilst other fan circles decry it for being woke and declare that it's not Doctor Who anymore and they will not be watching it because of, insert reason here, either because Jinx Monsoon is going to be on it or because they've gone politically correct because the Doctor's now black or whatever it is. There's always going to be an element of that in Doctor Who. I, I'm just going to say the only thing that makes me nervous about Doctor Who is, with one exception, I have been incredibly negative about every single Doctor as they've been announced since five. Every single time, apart from the time I was enthusiastic, I've been wrong. Now, I'm really, really enthusiastic about Shuti Gatwa. I don't know his work at all. I have not yet seen the Barbie movie, which he is in, and I have not yet watched Sex Education, in spite of the fact that Gillian Anderson is in it. I know, so unlike me. So I've never actually seen him in anything, but everything I've seen of him in social media and in promoting Doctor Who and all of that has just made me really, really like him. And so this is the first Doctor that I've been enthusiastic about that wasn't Peter Capaldi. And I knew, I just knew Peter Capaldi would be a perfect Doctor because I knew who he was and what he'd done and what he could do. So now I'm once again dealing with an unknown. I'm nervous because if I was wrong every time I was unenthusiastic, am I wrong now? I hope not. I don't think I am. Fortunately, we do not have long to wait. And so, here endeth the news. Ah, oh, that still makes me want to click my fingers. Now, obviously, that was recorded last Monday as you listen to this. So, news has probably happened since then and the time you're listening to this now. So something amazing and major has gone down, and you're all like wondering, well, why isn't he telling us about it? Well, that'll be why. Uh, I'll bring you to speed next week, except, of course, you'll know anyway, because seriously, if I'm your only source of news, that would be a problem. And so onwards. And we've not done a wonderful woman of science for a while. And so, in celebration both of Riri Williams and Doctor Who, I think we should perhaps not do a wonderful woman of science today, but a wonderful woman of engineering that I have wanted to talk about for some time. And so, as I ask you to cast your mind back to the 5th of May 1937, there has never been a more appropriate time you to also be hearing the time-travelling sound of the TARDIS. Because on the 5th of May 1937, the musician composer and electronic genius that was Delia Ann Derbyshire was born. The creator of that same TARDIS sound created using, I believe, her car keys or possibly her house keys dragged along a piano wire. And also, of course, the creator of the Doctor Who theme music. Now, she was not the composer. That was Ron Grainer. But she performed Ron Grainer's music using cutting-edge, at the time at least, cutting-edge electronic music techniques. And I believe that Doctor Who was the first electronic 
soundtrack thing. Theme song is what I'm looking for. On, certainly on British television and possibly in the world. So, what, who was Delia Derbyshire? Well, as I said, uh, she was born in uh, 1937 in Coventry. Daughter of Emma and Edward Derbyshire. Uh, they lived on Season, Cedars Avenue in Camden, Coventry. Her father was a sheet metal worker. She had a sister who died young, unfortunately, uh, she, and she lost her father in 1965. Uh, so again, reasonably young. Her mother survived until 1994, which is doing significantly better. Now, if she was born in 1937, that means that she was a child during the Second World War. And um, in 1940, after the Coventry Brit Blitz, she was moved to Preston in Lancashire for safety, which mm, not entirely sure I'm following that thinking, but OK. Her parents were from Preston, which I guess makes sense. And most of her surviving relatives still live in that area. She was, by all accounts, very bright. And by the age of four, she was teaching others in her class to read and write. But she says that the radio was her education. Uh, her parents bought her a piano uh, when she was eight years old, and she was educated at Bars Hill Grammar School between 1948 and 1956. She was accepted into both Oxford and Cambridge, which she says was, and I'm quoting now, quite something for a working class girl in the 50s, where only one in ten students were female. And yeah, actually, even now, for a kid to be accepted into both Oxford and Cambridge is quite something. Uh, she won a scholarship to study mathematics at Girton College at Cambridge, but she always claimed that she did badly, apart from some success in the area surrounding the mathematical theory of electricity. After one year at Cambridge, she switched her major to music and graduated in 1959 with a BA in mathematics and music, having specialised in medieval and modern music history, which I have to say is deliciously niche. She approached the Cambridge University Careers Office and told them that she was interested in sound, music and acoustics, uh, to which they responded by recommending a career either designing deaf aids or doing depth sounding. Now, that's their words, not mine. Um, she then applied for a position at Decca Records, only to be told that Decca did not employ women in their recording studios. So instead, as you might, uh, she took a job at the United Nations in Geneva from June to September, teaching piano to the children of the British Consul General and teaching mathematics to the children of the Canadian and South American diplomats. Then from September through to December, she worked as an assistant to a guy called Gerald G. Cross, who was head of, and do you know what? I'm reading this from my notes, which I took from the internet, and I still don't really know what this was. He was head of plenipotentiary and general administrative radio conferences at the International Telecommunication Union, which sounds really important, and I've got no idea what that was. Anyway. She returned to Coventry in January 1960 and taught general subjects in a primary school there. And we see this so often when we look back at incredibly talented women from the past who 
we just kind of ended up teaching primary school, which I should say is a worthy and noble thing. But at the same time, I think what it shows is the lack of vision of society at the time that could only see women in a couple of roles. Even as teachers, society could only see them as teachers of young children. And I'm, I'm glad that's changed, is all I'm saying. Anyway, from there, she went to London. Uh, and between May and October 1960, uh, she worked as an assistant in the promotion department of the music publishers Boozy and Hawks. And then, in 1960, in November 1960, she joined the BBC as a trainee assistant studio manager. And she also worked on Record Review, a magazine uh, programme where critics reviewed classical music recordings. Sort of a top of the pops for Beethoven type stuff. She said that people thought she had some kind of second sight. That one of the music critics would say, I don't know where it is, but it's where the trombones come in. And she'd hold the recording up to the light, see the trombones and put the needle down exactly where it was. Now, that is a real sound recorder skill. It's something that really good studio engineers can can still do. Uh, these days, they aren't doing it looking at tape or grooves on vinyl. They're doing it looking at a digital readout on the screen. Much like the one I'm looking at right now as I record this. I'm not quite that good, although I do know just from looking at the track when I'm going, um because I know what that sound looks like, because I, I do it a lot. Honestly, that's not because I'm a good engineer. It's because I'm a terrible speaker. Anyway, um, it was around about then that she heard about the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and decided that that was where she wanted to work. And the fact that she was volunteering for this was greeted with some puzzlement by the people in charge because normally people were assigned to the radiophonic workshop which is to say most people didn't want to go there but in april 1962 uh, she got herself assigned to the radiophonic workshop in maida vale and she went on to work there for 11 years during which time she would create music and sound for almost 200 radio and television programs in August 1962, she assisted the composer Luciano Berrio at a two-week summer school at Dartington Hall, for which she borrowed, that's in heavy air quotes, several items of BBC equipment. It should be noted here that when I say she was borrowing BBC equipment, it's not like she was sort of taking stuff that the BBC had bought and borrowing it. This is stuff that, in large part, she had designed and built herself. Yes, it was the property of the BBC because she did it for the BBC, but this is not off-the-shelf tech. This is stuff that she was designing and building for herself. Now, this does not make her unique. Most electronic sound engineers were doing the same thing because this is the beginnings of all of that, and that's why she's a wonderful woman of engineering because yes she's a talented musician and should be celebrated in that light but for the purposes of this show 
It's her engineering prowess, her ability to work as an audio engineer and create the, the, the equipment that she needed that makes her so worthy of celebration. And of course, one of her first works for the BBC Radiophonic Workshop came in 1963, uh, the electronic realisation of Ron Grange's score for Doctor Who. When Grainer heard it, he was so astonished by Derbyshire's arrangement of that of his theme that his first reaction was, did I really write this? To which apparently Derbyshire responded, oh, most of it. Now, Grainer did actually try to give Derbyshire a co-credit as the co-composer, but he was not allowed by the BBC because the BBC preferred that members of the workshop remain anonymous. Yeah, it's a weird policy that I don't really understand, but it was kind of the way things were done in the 60s, I guess. It was at least not misogyny. It was not sexism. It wasn't because she was a woman she didn't get credited. It's because she was a member of BBC staff. So there's that. So she was actually not credited for any on-screen work until Doctor Who's 50th anniversary special, The Day of the Doctor. I know. I can scarcely credit it either, but there you are. Derbyshire's original arrangement was the Doctor Who main theme for the first 17 series of Doctor Who, from 1963 all the way through to 1980. The theme was reworked over the years, uh, which she was not happy about because the only version that she had given her approval for was the original. But again, you do work for hire, you don't own it. It's unfortunate, but there you go. That's what happens, unfortunately. Uh, Derbyshire also composed music for other BBC programmes, including uh, a bunch of stuff I haven't heard of. Uh, if you look on Wikipedia, it will tell you that she comp composed music for Blue Veils and Golden Sands and the uh, Delian mode. Yeah, I've no idea what they are either. Uh, then in 1964 and to 65, she collaborated with the British artist and playwright Barry Bermange for the BBC's third programme uh, to produce four Inventions for Radio programmes, uh, a series of collages of people describing their thoughts on dreams, belief in God, the possibility of life after death, and their experience of old age. Uh, and these voices were placed over an, an electronic soundscape created by Derbyshire. Uh, in 1966, working with the composer George Newsom, uh, she also worked on the experimental BBC radio drama The Man Who Collected Sounds, one of which I suspect you have ever actually heard, because the BBC's record for keeping stuff from back then is not particularly great, which is a shame because I'm sure it was completely groundbreaking. But hey, there you go. It's at this point, as 1963 moves into 1964 and then into 1965, Derbyshire starts to move away from the BBC while still working with the Radiophonic Workshop in 1966. Derbyshire and uh, her fellow Radiophonic Workshop member, Brian Hodgson, joined up with the EMS founder Peter Zinoviev 
to set up Unit Delta Plus, which sounds like it could come from Doctor Who. This was, in fact, an organisation that they intended would create and promote electronic music. Uh, they based themselves in a studio at Zenovio's townhouse in Putney, of all places, and they exhibited their music at music festivals, you know, festivals of experimental and electronic music, uh, including in 1966. And I suspect this is really where they got their their big start uh, at the Million Volt Light and Sound Rave, uh, which was also where uh, the Carnival of Light by the Beatles got its only public performance. A piece of music I've never heard in, and may now go and look up, in fact. Um, also in 1966, she recorded a demo with uh, Anthony Newley called Moogies Bloogies because it was still 1966. But he moved on to the United States and Moogies Bloogies was never released. So things were not going well for um, Unit Delta Plus. And after a not particularly successful performance at the Royal College of Art in 1967, they went their separate ways. And as the 1960s began to wane, Derbyshire again partnered with Hodgson to set up the Kaleidophon studio in Camden uh, with uh, David Vorhaus, who was also, uh, a, at the time, a well-known electronic musician. I'm not quite sure how well-known he'd been now. Uh, now, they produced music, electronic music, for London theatre productions. And in 1968, they produced their first album uh, as the band White Noise. This debut album, An Electric Storm, is still considered an influential album in the development of electronic music. Derbyshire and Hodgson eventually left the group, and although there were White Noise albums after that, uh, they were just solo projects by uh, David Vorhaus. But under a number of pseudonyms, that trio of Derbyshire, Hodgson and Vorhaus did contribute uh, a bunch of stuff to the standard music library. Many of these recordings, including things that Derbyshire composed under the name Lee de la Russe, uh, which apparently is an anagram from the letters in Delia and a reference to her red hair, uh, were used in 1970s ITV science fiction programmes that were in opposition, really, to Doctor Who. Rivals, perhaps. Uh, the Tomorrow People used some of her music, uh, as did Time Slip. Now, I've never seen Time Slip, but I remember the Tomorrow People fondly. And now I know that some of that music is Delia Derbyshire's. I can completely hear it. Yeah. Also, in 1967, Derbyshire worked uh, with Guy Wolfenden uh, on the score for Peter Hall's production of Macbeth at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, those two composers, Derbyshire and Wolfenden, also con contributed to Sir Peter Hall's film, Work is a Four-Letter Word, in 1968. She was doing other stuff in this period as well, um, taking part in, in the performance of electronic music at the Roundhouse, where Paul McCartney was known to turn up and do stuff, uh, and other stuff as well. She worked on the soundtrack to the film Legend of Hell House uh, as part of um, Hodgson's Electrophone studio. Uh, and in 1975, 
she worked on two soundtracks for video artist uh, Madeleine Huyakas and Elsa Stansfield. Uh, the the short films were respectively In uh, Van Die Dagen, or One of Those Days, forgive my Dutch, and um, Overbruggen, or About Bridges, which was in 1975. Um, she also composed a score for Yoko Ono's short film Rapping Event, uh, but no copy of the film with soundtrack is known to exist. So we'll never hear that. And that, that was it. In 1975, she just stopped producing music. So Overbruggen was basically the last thing she did. She went on to work as a radio operator for British gas pipe playing projects, which makes a lot more sense than you'd think. And I might get into that in a, in a future engineering thing. She worked in an art gallery. She worked in a bookshop. Uh, she got married in 1974 to a guy called David Hunter very briefly. Um, well, their relationship was brief. They never actually divorced. Uh, she also uh, spent a lot of time at um, the LYC Museum and Art Gallery. Uh, and she worked as an assistant to the Chinese artist Li Huan Che uh, in Cumbria. In 1978, she went back to London. She met a guy called Clive Blackburn. And in 1980, she bought a house in Northampton, uh, where a certain beardy wizard hangs out. Um, and she lived there with Blackburn for the rest of her life. She briefly returned to music in 2001, providing sounds used as source material by um, Peter Kember in uh, the Synchrondipity machine um a 55 second soundtrack for the compilation grain a compla compilation of 99 short tracks which was released by dot dot music in 2001 she's credited in the liner notes of that album uh, with liquid paper sounds generated using fourier synthesis of sound based in on photo pixel info which i don't know what that means either i'm afraid i'm sure it means something to people who really really love electronic music um that track was released posthumously and dedicated to her dumbish's later life is described uh, by wikipedia and other biographers I, it's not my only source uh, as well the word that crops up most often is chaotic um she struggled with alcoholism in later life and she died of renal failure brought on by cancer in July 2001. She was 64, which is no age at all. But she did burn so very, very brightly. People talk about Delia Derbyshire and they start and end with the Doctor Who theme music. And let's be honest, given how well known that is, if that was the only thing she'd done, that would be impressive. But that's not the only thing she's done. She was a formidable acoustic engineer. She was incredible in an audio studio. She had real vision and an astonishing amount of talent. So talk about Delia Derbyshire. And don't just talk about Doctor Who. She was, without question, a wonderful woman 
of engineering, and actually a wonderful woman of science as well. And so we move on. We have talked about a wonderful woman of science. Now, let's talk about a truly awful man of both science and engineering. Tom, cue the music. Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. Nazi schmazi, says Werner von Braun. Don't say that he's hypocritical, say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? <laughs> That's not my department, says Werner van Braun. <laughs> some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero once you've learned to count backwards to zero. In German or English, I know how to count down. And I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun. What I wanted to do with this particular episode was take a look at one of the greatest moral compromises that I think has ever been made by science. That would be the beginnings of the Apollo program and the American space program in general, actually. Which is why I started with that song, Werner von Braun, by the great musical satirist Tom Lehrer. Has, uh, well, did before he died, make his music completely copyright free it's it's public domain tom there is stuff you can reprint it repost it redo anything with it you like as a fan i do feel it's important to honor tom lira's wishes and i don't know if you could tell from the song that he wrote but tom lira hated Werner von Braun, and we'll get into why in a bit and so i wouldn't have you he once actually did uh, allow a podcaster to, while he was alive, to use that song, to actually print the sheet music to that song in a book about the space programme. And he did it on the condition, he, at that time he gave permission on condition that the book would be horrible about Von Braun and demonstrate what a, a reprehensible monster the man was. Because, see previous comments about Tom Lehrer hating Werner Von Braun. Um, were I about to paint you a very positive picture of Werner von Braun, I wouldn't have used that song. So, spoilers! Uh, I'm going to tell you about a monster today. A real monster. A man who I... A man whose technical achievements I respect, but whose methods, whose ethics, whose morality, I think are... Reprehensible is not strong enough a word. Uh, and I'm getting that out of the way right at the beginning because 
hopefully, as you listen to the story I'm about to tell you, you will also begin to realise what a monster the Americans were in cahoots with when they started their space program. Now, I love the American space program. I'm, I'm an absolute cheerleader for it. But because I am, I think we do have to look at this. And I just want to be clear uh, what the editorial position of this show is before we start. Um, this is not an hour of boring preachy part, I promise. But to avoid being an hour of boring preachy part, I want to start right up front. The man I'm about to tell you about today is a monster. I make no claims for him. I make no apologies for him because I don't think you can apologize for a monster like this. He was slime. He was vile. And if anybody wants to debate me on that, I'll happily do it in another forum. OK, I'm not going to keep banging on about that. I'll let your own. I'll let you make your own decisions. I just want to make my position clear so I don't have to mention it again. OK, cool. Who was Werner von Brandt? And you'll notice that Tom Lehrer calls him Werner von Braun. Um, I'm going to call him von Braun. Because as far as I'm aware, that's how he pronounced it. I don't think he deserves any such respect, but I, I, I'm a stickler for technical accuracy, I think. So, Von Braun, who was he and why are we talking about him in relationship to Apollo and the American space program in general? Well, do you know what? I'm really glad you asked, because if you didn't want to know the answer to that question, you are listening to the wrong show. So, uh, how you deal with the life and achievements of Werner Von Braun? Offers, well, three approaches, really. You can deal with just his achievements. You can ignore all the bad stuff and you can just focus on the birth of the American space program, the Apollo project and landing human people on the moon. It is pretty clear to me, and I honestly, I don't think this is hyperbole. It's pretty clear to me that America, if it had been able to achieve that feat at all, would not have achieved that feat without Von Braun. They certainly would not have achieved that feat in the 1960s without Von Braun. He might have taken them, I don't know, the five years or the ten years, but it would not have been achieved in 1969 without Von Braun. He was that important, and you can just focus on that aspect of his life. Or you can deal with his life chronologically, or you can load the thing so that you put all of the bad stuff in one section of your story and all of the good stuff in another. Now, I am, I think, going to take the chronological approach because, if we're honest, all of the bad stuff is pre his NASA days. And I think knowing who he was, knowing what his background was when he arrived at NASA, I think is important because... Fairly understandably, given the importance of the Apollo program and the space program in general, to not just NASA, but to the, the great American political project in the 1950s and 60s. Knowing how important he was it's, it's to all of that, it's unsurprising, really, that there was a reasonable amount of propaganda, a reasonable amount of rewriting history might be thought of as a bit strong by some, but certainly presenting history in a palatable way around Von Braun. He was reinvented. I think if you know who he was before he arrived, I think that 
probably helps. So, who was Werner von Braun? Werner Magnus Maximilian Freiherr von Braun was born on the 23rd of March 1912 in the town of Wirsitz in the province of Posen in the Kingdom of Prussia, which was then part of the German Empire and now is part of Poland. His father, Magnus Freiherr von Braun, was a civil servant and a politician who was on the conservative side of German politics. He did serve as Minister of Agriculture in the federal government during the Weimar Republic. So, you know, he was part of that whole hedonistic Berlin scene, but not in the hedonistic Berlin scene. He was in Berlin at the time, but he he didn't dig all of that. Uh, von Braun's mother, Magnus von Braun's wife, was born Emmy von Quistrop, and she traced her ancestry through both of her parents to medieval European royalty. Uh, she was a descendant of Philip III of France, uh, of Vladimir I of Denmark, Robert III of Scotland, and Edward III of England. That's perhaps, amongst any European noble family, less impressive than it sounds. Um, they did tend to, A, put it about a bit, and B, keep it in the family. Werner had an older brother, uh, Sigismund, who was a diplomat, uh, who went on to be a diplomat for the country that would become West Germany. And he was Secretary of State in the West German Foreign Office in the 1970s. And uh, his younger brother, Magnus von Braun, was also into rockets and became uh, a senior executive with Chrysler. In short, this was a privileged family that had it going on. Werner von Braun was born into privilege. Uh, the von signifies sort of noble status in German aristocracy. This is not a child who struggled. Also, not a child that was born into extremism. Uh, his father was you know, on the conservative side of Weimar politics, but he was still in Weimar politics. But all of that is yet in the future. It was 1915 when the von Braun family, uh, with their young children, moved uh, to Berlin, where... Werner von Braun's father worked at the Ministry of the Interior. After Werner von Braun was confirmed into the church, uh, he was given as a present a telescope. And that was where he traced his passion for astronomy and for space generally to, to that telescope, to that gift. Maybe that that's the kind of thing that sounds apocryphal to me. It's the kind of story one makes up to tell people later. But... Let's take it at face value for now. He learned music as a child. Uh, he had a fairly unremarkable upper class German life. Uh, his family came through the torment of the First World War as unscathed as one could as a member of the German aristocracy at the time. And he went to school. Uh, from 1925, he attended the Ettersburg uh, Castle Boarding School near Weimar in the Free State of uh, Thuringia, where he did not do particularly well in physics and maths, which you know, is surprising, really, given what he ended up doing. But it was while at school here that he acquired a copy of, um, and you'll anyone who speaks German, please forgive my pronunciation, okay? 
Uh, he was given a copy of Dirachet Zudan Planetenarum. That's Dirachet Zudan Planetenarum. Something like that. Uh, translated into English, it means rocket into planetary space. I don't know that that's where the conference has got the idea for the song title from, but it may be. It may be. Anyway, when he got this book as a gift from the rocket pioneer Hermann Oberth. In 1928, Werner von Braun was moved by his parents to the Hermann Leitz Internat, uh, which is also uh, a residential school, a boarding school, uh, on the East Frisian North Sea island of Speikerug. And again, German speakers, I apologise, OK? By this point, I think it probably is fair to say that space travel was fascinating to Werner von Braun, uh, and he was now really applying himself to physics and maths as subjects because he wanted to do well, because he wanted to be a rocket engineer. This was not a hugely respectable scientific discipline at the time. Uh, around about this time, Robert Goddard in the United States, the father of American rocketry, is being derided for his theories on rocket propulsion. Uh, he does turn out to be right, for what it's worth. Spoilers for the life of Robert Goddard. But, you know, this was not taken massively seriously. Uh, the world's first large-scale e experimental rocketry program uh, was uh, the Opel RAK, or Opel Rack, uh, under the leadership of uh, Fritz von Opel and Max Velia in the late 1920s, which led up to the first crewed rocket cars and rocket planes. And I mean the word, it's nice this is an audio medium, because I mean crude in both senses of that word. Uh, crude in that, yes, there, there was a pilot, a crew, aboard these rocket cars and rocket planes, but also they were crude, as in really unsophisticated by modern standards. Uh, this was the root programme that would pave the way for the Nazi-era V2 programme, and therefore paved the way for the future US and Soviet space programmes in the 1950s. But we're getting ahead of ourselves again. We're in the late 1920s. The Opel Rack programme provided spectacular public demonstrations of ground and air vehicles powered by rocket motors, which understandably drew large crowds. If you've ever seen uh, a, a live rocket launch, even a small one, even a model rocket, even the kinds of rockets I used to build at school are really impressive if you've not seen one go before. Uh, it, it's just a, a, an, an, just a fundamentally impressive thing to see. And this became a sort of global excitement. Um, uh, the so-called rocket rumble was heard around the world. And young teenagers like the then 16-year-old Werner von Braun, were drawn into it. Again, in, in ways you can understand. Kids love technology. So the young Werner von Braun at this time in the late 1920s is building his own homemade rocket car. Uh, he nearly killed himself in the process and caused quite a lot of destruction on a crowded street by detonating a toy wagon uh, that he's filled with fireworks. At this point, his life and my life are not dissimilar. I used to do crap like this. Um... He was taken into custody by the local police until his father came to get him. That never happened to me because I wasn't stupid enough to blow things up in public. Anyway, all of this was ended by the Great Depression. Um, Fritz von Opel left Germany in 1930 
moving first to the US, then to France, and then to Switzerland. Vela was eventually killed while experimenting with liquid-fueled rockets as a means of propulsion in the mid-1930s. Uh, he is considered the first fatality of the space age, and uh, not the last by any means. Um, playing with rockets means playing with explosives, and this is not a undertaking that is completely safe. Back to von Braun. In 1930, von Braun attended the... Um, Oh, again, German speakers, forgive me. I've written this down in the script and I, I've listened to it being said out loud by Google many, many times. And I'm still going to get it wrong. Uh, the Technische Hochschule Berlin, uh, where he joined the Spaceflight Society. Uh, the Verint für Raumschifft. Again, sorry. Uh, which had been co-founded by Vela. And he worked with Woody Lay on his liquid-fueled rocket motor test in conjunction with uh, other people such as uh, Rolf Engel, Rudolf Nebel, Hermann Oberth, names that if you're into rockets, you'll know. And if you're not into rockets, they're not important to the rest of the story, so don't worry about it. In the spring of 1932, von Braun graduates with a diploma in mechanical engineering. And he's convinced now that the exploration of space is going to require far more than simple engineering skill. So he wants to know more about physics, about chemistry, and about astronomy. And so von Braun enters the Friedrichs Wilhelm University of Berlin for doctoral studies, and he graduates from there in 1934 with a doctorate of physics. He also studied at ETH Zurich for a term from June to October in 1931. And so we hit the 1930s. In Germany. If you've read any history at all, you know where this is going. Von Braun had what many historians like to think of as an ambivalent and complex relationship with Nazi Germany. That's what it says on Wikipedia. I call shenanigans on that, actually. Uh, I don't think Werner von Braun's relationship with Nazi Germany was all that complicated. He joined the SS. Okay. Um, he joined the Nazi party early, or at least early-ish. Von Braun himself was to claim that he had joined the Nazi party on the brink of war in 1939, under some pressure uh, that, you know, in, in order to remain involved in his rocket work, he needed security, you know, in, you know, in a country on the brink of war, he needed security clearances and that kind of thing. They were only available to party members. So he joined the Nazi party in order to remain at the cutting edge of German technical research. And that, you know, his joining did not in any way imply any kind of political belief whatsoever. As I say, I call shenanigans on that because von Braun applied for membership of the Nazi party on the 12th of November 1937, two full years before he claims he did, and certainly before being a member of the Nazi party was required in order to do the work that von Braun claims he joined the party to be allowed to do. You joined the Nazi party in 1937 for two reasons. Either you were a true believer in the Nazi ideal, or you were ambitious and morally, let's say morally ambiguous, shall we? Um, and you saw that being a member of the Nazi party was a way to advancement. That, that, those are the two reasons you joined. So 
I do not and have never bought this line that Von Braun was not really a Nazi. He just joined the party because he didn't really have a lot of choice. Then the war happens. And Werner von Braun is a member not only of the Nazi party, but the SS. You know, the dudes with the skulls on their hats. Those guys. Now, Braun, with the help of many people in America, up to and including Walt flipping Disney, would spend the rest of his life trying to downplay his actions in the war and his connection to the Nazis. I don't think I can allow that to stand. So, next time, we will get into the things that von Braun did during the Second World War, and how he got away with that, how he was not caught up in the trials for war crimes, which I think he might actually have committed. Certainly, the British were not big von Braun fans at the end of the war. How he got away with that, and how he got to the USA to become the father of the American Apollo moon missions. And with that, we are very, very nearly done. Just a couple of things. If you are in any way creative and you pr promote your work on Twitter, because I'm still calling it that, check their terms of service. They're changing. And you may not wish to expose your art or creative writing to those terms and conditions. I'm not going to go massively deeply into, into it now. Uh, I can tell you that we will be deleting our Twitter account if those terms of service are not changed. And we don't post that much important on there. So go give it a check. Um, other rather unsavory things are also going on on Twitter. Uh, we'll probably have a look at social media over the next couple of weeks because there have been some developments. Social media is changing and not for the better. Uh, I, I'm picking on Twitter right now, but Facebook, Instagram and threads are also looking uh, a little bit sus to me right about now. So if you have a social media account, read those terms of service carefully and be sure that you are happy with them. Uh, because I am recording this at the beginning of the week, I do not have any information to put on the Geek Community Notice Board this week. Uh, so I will simply tell you to check carefully the Geek Pub Quiz social media pages. Uh, one or two of their quizzes have changed date-wise recently, so do check. And uh, ditto, you can also always check the Geek Retreat Harrogate social media pages for what's happening with them. And indeed, you probably have a Geek Retreat near you. If you're not in Harrogate, check their social media pages too, why don't you? What I do want to give a very quick plug to is the Dead Northern Film Festival, which is taking place from Friday the 29th of September to the Sunday the 1st of October 2023 at the City Screen Picture House in York. This is Yorkshire's horror and fantasy film festival. Uh, check them out at www.deadnorthern.co.uk. They've got a fantastic programme of brilliant films from around the world for you to enjoy. Uh, and they are, without question, the premier horror festival in the north. So go and check them out as well.
But that is all we have time for this week. We will see you next week. Until we do, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else, and above all else, stay geeky!